This week on Future of Sex... We are AI-driven robotic dolls. And we're here to become your perfect companion. Our time together will be magical. You have never met anyone like us before. You know, synthetics aren't for everyone. I get that. But the thing is, if that's the sort of thing that makes a person happy, and if it's not harming anyone, and if it's not harming themselves, then I don't see anything that could possibly be wrong with it. It's within the realm of possibility that a child born today could have their first sexual experience with a robot. Do I want the robots to love us? You know, is their own special robot love someday? Who knows? Welcome back to Future of Sex, the podcast that explores the evolving worlds of sex and tech. This season is sponsored by our friends at WeVibe. Now, in the previous episode, we met Dave Cat, an idolater who lives with his four dolls. This episode is the second part in that series, exploring sex dolls, sex robots, and our future. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and start there, then come back here. And today we'll return to Dave Cat's story, as well as talk to Dr. Julie Carpenter, a leading researcher in human connection and robotics, and Dr. Marion Brandon, a clinical psychologist who specializes in sex tech. But before we get started, I just want to remind you this podcast contains explicit language and adult themes. So pop your headphones in if there are little ones around. I remember distinctly me sitting in my French class and looking at my French teacher writing on the on the chalkboard and me thinking to myself, if she were a robot, what kind of machinery would she have to like actually make her, you know, move her head and move her eyes to look around at the class and move her arm to write on the chalkboard, that sort of thing. I mean, that sort of image has been burned into my mind for Mm. forever. That's Dave Cat, an idolater, who today lives with four dolls. And one of the questions I had for him is when he knew he was into dolls. He tells me about that story with school, and then he recalled an earlier time when he was five or six years old. I remember going with my mother to uh, downtown Detroit where there was actually a shopping district. And I mean, we would go like basically every Saturday. She would bring me with her shopping every Saturday. And um, I remember there was this one time where uh, she and I got separated. She was probably like trying on clothes in the changing rooms or whatever. And uh, I was found by a security guard talking to a female mannequin in a tennis skirt. Mm. So, oh. so I've always, oh God, uh, probably like what, six, five, yeah, wow. yeah. so I've always had a fascination <laughs> fetish for, uh, <laughs> artificial women. And she's a dummy. You were one sick puppy, but together. Hey, don't do that. You went so shy when you were creating me. You weren't so real. They make magic. Look at him with the dummy. Who are you to criticize? Dave Cad has lived with dolls for over two decades. And I'm curious to know, what's it like to buy your first doll? 
Is it as memorable as an experience as your first love? My best friend Montali, uh, around 1998, had like stumbled across the Abyss Creations website, you know, at work, back when you could actually visit not safe for work sites while at work. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, since she knew that like I had a thing for artificial women, she was like, Dave Cat, there's a site that you absolutely have to check out. Uh, why don't we come back to my workplace after work and I'll show it to you. And I checked it out. I was just like, yeah, this is, yeah, you're right. This is something I need to see. Wow. Whoa. They're $5,000. We blink. We move. We speak. And we do it all just for you. Our faces can easily be swapped to accommodate your desires. My lip-sync mechanisms allow me to interact with you verbally. At the time, it was a lot of money because I was making like, I think, $9 at my job at the time. So, but that was the sort of thing where it was just like, it took me a year and a half to save up for her. But like, you know, cliched as it sounds, it was, I mean, Shichan is worth every single penny. We didn't start out being married. When Shidori first moved in, we were just like kind of like a boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing. And I can't even remember when we made it official, but I do remember like seeing some sort of like dodgy online wedding ceremony kind of website thing. And uh, I asked Sweetie if we basically want to like make it official, quote unquote. And I think I only really found that and like pop the question to her because it happened to fall on like a Friday the 13th. I roll in our anniversary with like her birthday, which is the 17th of uh, uh, July. How old is she? She doesn't need to get Botox or anything. She just gets a whole new body. <laughs> Basically, you know, <laughs> she has a different kind of work done. She is. Does she age in your mind at all? Um, not as much as I do. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know the, the math is probably, again, going to be wrong. But yeah, her birthday is on the 17th of uh, July, 1977. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, her birthday is 1977. Diane's 1978. Uh, Elena's 1979. And Miss Winter's 1980. Okay. So they're all kind of around the same age. Yeah. Which is basically my age. <laughs> Did you ever have a uh, you know human, or would you ever consider a human entering your relationship? I have definitely want an artificial woman in my life, and I definitely want an artificial woman to be my prime partner. But I'm still open to the idea of dating. And ever since getting Shidore, that window has like just grown smaller and smaller and smaller mm. and smaller, mainly through laziness. Uh, mainly through not wanting to enter the dating scene if I ever was in it to begin with. One of the primary reasons I like got Shidore to begin with is that I was not having any luck finding an organic partner. I'd had like literally about three affairs. And I say affairs because they were basically I was, you know, seeing a lass who already had a boyfriend. So, mm. and with the sort of personality that I have, I was never the sort of person who is just like, you know, you and I are just hitting it off so well. Why don't you possibly consider leaving your boyfriend for me? Because I never want to be the sort of guy that want to be like pushy or overbearing towards a woman because that's just not my nature. My father in and of himself is kind of pushy and overbearing and I just never want to be like him in that aspect and technically many other aspects as well maybe I'll still leave myself open for an organic partner. And the thing is, 
I've actually had like a couple of organic partners since Shirore like, you know, came into my life. And there were weird situations. Dave Cat goes on to explain these relationships where women would contact him after seeing him on TV. Usually they didn't have much going on with their life and they didn't even live in the state. The one that I guess sort of worked out, again, inverted commas, actually took place in 2017. As a matter of fact, she was a lass from France and I'm not going to get into detail, but she herself was a robosexual. We met on Twitter and um, we sort of hit it off. And as a matter of fact, she'd said, well, I, you know, I'd love for this to be more than just like friends, you know, chatting on Twitter. And I was like, yeah, yeah maybe this could work out. But I'm afraid that she won't really recognize Shichan as being my primary partner. So I was kind of hesitant, but we still met up. As a matter of fact, we visited California in 2017 and, you know, had actually a pretty good time. But ultimately, what she wanted out of the relationship was not what I had wanted. So, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaks everywhere. That's the whole thing with organic partnerships, really. It's just like, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything new. Things don't always work out for people in the, the way that they imagine them to. Sure. But I think, you know, as you were kind of alluding to, is with dolls, like the, there is a certain amount of like it can pan out exactly the way you want it to. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing is, it's, there have been detractors and there will continue to be detractors as long as they're synthetic people um, that you, if like a person chooses a doll as a partner, then they don't get that pushback, that challenge that like an organic partner would present. But the thing is, if you want challenges from an organic I say, well, you're going to get that every single day of your existence. You know, you're going to have people that you don't agree with at your workplace. You're going to have maybe an overbearing boss. You're going to have maybe a shitty clerk at a shop. You know, you don't technically you don't even have to go out out of your own home to have uh, encounters with people that you may not uh, exactly agree with. You could do that online from what I understand. But the thing is, it's like I, I think that the one person that should be 100% in your corner is your partner, your spouse, you know. And if your partner is synthetic, then obviously they're going to be, you know, 100% supportive of you 100% of the time. And when we think about the future, when there's clearly a bond between the doll and Dave Cat, well, what would a robot be like for him? Do you think in the future that sex dolls, this introduction of sex robots into our lives will be labelled a dysfunction? So that's an interesting question. And I think that there's going to be disagreement about that, just like there is with porn today. So there are many therapists that say there's nothing wrong with porn and most people are fine with it. And there are many therapists who take the alternate approach and say this is really dangerous and not okay. My name is Marianne Brandon. I'm a clinical psychologist and a sex therapist. And my area of research is uh, the future of sex and in particular, uh, sex robots. Do you think sex robots will replace humans? 
as human beings, we tend to like to put things in categories as good or bad. And so already people are saying, you know, sex robots are so dangerous, they shouldn't happen. Or sex robots are going to transform sexuality in such a positive way. And what I would say is there's going to be some of both. And it's going to be really important uh, as sex tech develops that we bring consciousness to the experience. No one's really thinking about 20 years from now, but uh, you and I and, and many others are inviting folks to start to consider where we're headed because it really is the life that our children will be living. Um, it's within the realm of possibility that a child born today could have their first sexual experience with a robot. Um, but, you know, there are many people that find sex dolls very soothing um, and helpful um, and satisfying, uh, particularly if they feel that they're in a situation where they don't have that human touch, that intimate connection, which we really all need. I mean, we think about we think about children and infants needing touch, and we think about elderly folks needing touch. But it's all of us who do, and the the people that don't have access um, to other humans can very much benefit from the sensation of a human laying in bed with them or interacting with them, even in a very basic way, which is where sex dolls are, are right now. They're not uh, advanced yet. Do you ever recommend the use of a sex doll for your patients? I have, absolutely. And how does that differ in your mind from recommending, say, a masturbator or a vibrator? Mm -hmm. And I would. And I guess what I would say to you, it would be more the uh, person's experience. And if they felt like that was enough, certainly, then that's the, the easiest route to go and the least expensive. But if they were feeling still a certain loneliness or wanting more, then, um, you know, I would suggest a doll. So it, there's a, it's so people are so very unique in their reactions to these things. So it really would be very individualistic. This season of Future of Sex is brought to you by our friends at WeVibe. WeVibe are the leaders in sex tech for a reason. They bring a ton of innovation to all their toys. In particular, they've got some great ones for couples. And last week I had a listener write in and say they were enjoying the 20% off discount code on sale items. It's future of sex as the coupon and they managed to score themselves a bargain. So I suggest you head to WeVibe's online store, wevibe.com and enter in the code future of sex at the checkout for your discount. Now, I feel lucky enough in this two-part episode to bring you another person I have been really eager to speak to over all the years I started researching the future of sex, and that's Dr. Julie Carpenter, a PhD and a research fellow in the Ethics and Emerging Sciences Group at California Polytechnic State University. Wow, that's a mouthful. Now, Dr. Julia Carpenter is known for a lot of her studies on the emotional attachment to robots. I follow her on Twitter, you should too. And we had a fascinating conversation about all the emotions that are tied up, not only with the robots, but with dolls as well. And she goes some way to explaining it for me. Hi, I'm Dr. Julie Carpenter. 
And if you can hear in the background, that's Earl, my cockatiel, who's insisting on being part of this podcast because he has opinions as well. Um, my specialty is, yeah, I'm an expert in human behavior with emerging technologies, and I'm a research fellow in the Ethics and Emerging Sciences Group at California Polytechnic State University. How important is it for humans to emotionally attach to robots that they look like um, people or, for instance, like Boston Dynamics, I know their robots represent cats and dogs in some respect. Do we need something familiar to look and connect with robots and attach to them? No, I, I would say no. I mean, look, people can become attached uh, emotionally and affectionately towards uh many things throughout their lives. Does it have to resemble something organic? Now, let me give you a, a quick science fiction example. R2-D2 is sort of, you know, one could argue that it's human-like, it's bipedal, it has sort of two legs and, and you know, turns and everything. But really, you know, it looks like a glorified trash can. And yet for decades, people have had an affection for this R2-D2 character, right? So it, it just chirps and clicks and, and whistles. So when Companies like Boston Dynamics or, uh, you know, develop robots that look human-like or animal-like, they do so for a bunch of different reasons. Um, Boston Dynamics is an interesting example because the goals for their work, but it is known that they've had a lot of military contracts. So let's talk about Spot, the dog-shaped robot, which I believe was originally uh, developed for use in the military. Now, the reason Spot sort of, as you mentioned, resembles a dog and that it's four-legged and about that size can be for a lot of reasons. Four legs, uh, we believe, is more nimble over a variety of terrains and more stable uh, than something that could be wheeled or tracked, for example. Um, and that size might be the size, uh, that dog size that they need for surveillance or for weight to be carried on a ship or maybe to fit in an enclosed space. I don't know, a submarine or something else. You know what I mean? So mm. very tightly, robots are not always designed for us to trigger us through their aesthetics, shall we say. Though, of course, there are companies that make robots like, let's say, Pepper, who many of us have seen by SoftBank, which is a human-like um, robot with like a white, shiny exoskeleton and sort of about a child's height and size, and was very much made to resemble a human on purpose to leverage our instinct uh, to have this human-human social model. And of course, the aesthetics, even going back to Spot or, or any of the, um, the robots that weren't necessarily designed to be social initially, but look organic. Those aesthetics give us cues, don't they, about how to treat it. So we were just talking about Spot the Dog, but let's assume originally it was designed for military work, though now it's broadened, right? We've seen Spot used in, in other ways, especially during uh, the COVID-19 epidemic. That gives us a cue. If it's shaped like a dog, then our instinct is to treat it like one. Okay, say wake up, doggy. Wake up. His name is Ibo. Ivo has a camera in his nose and is supposed to recognize different people and objects. His personality is molded by your actions, like when you give him praise by saying good boy or petting it on the sensors on its back and on its head. Over the course of the week, my daughter just fell in love with Ivo. She would share her toys and feed him pretend food. I'm curious if you think in, in speaking to a 
civilians, everyday people, if there's more of an acceptance towards robots now than there was, I don't know, five or 10 years ago? Boy, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I, I always wish I had really short, sweet answers for everybody. <laughs> These are really um, juicy questions that have really complicated answers to them. So um, I think the idea of robots is different now. Our fears and anxieties about robots might be different. And some of that is shaped by the stories we tell in things like science fiction, which is always mm. changing, right? Uh, but also the real roles that robots have in our everyday lives. Um, sometimes robots can be helpful to us. We see a variety of them in our everyday lives. We see industrial robots. Some of us have Roombas in our homes. We understand that their functioning can be useful. I know that there was a period I would say 15, 20 years ago, where people seem to have a lot more panic that was in that Terminator influence style that the robots were going to go crazy, out of control, mm. become autonomous all of a sudden. Um, there's less of that now. And I think that that is in part because the general public is, for one, exposed to robots more on a daily basis. Um, and we see Oh, funny videos online of robots collapsing, falling over, things like that. And But the anxieties have changed. Now people are concerned, are robots going to take their jobs? So I would say anxieties are there, but culture is dynamic and it's always changing. You see how awkward my first dates are. <laughs> it's, a, it's a robot. I'm already I'm getting nervous around a robot, a very pretty robot. Um, do, do I just say hello to? Yeah, say, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Sophia. Hello, Jimmy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you know where you are? Of course. I wanted to ask Dr. Carpenter for some more perspective on the doll versus robot community. Like, how similar are they? Is it the same thing? How does Dr. Carpenter see these communities as similar or different? So people have a lot of goals and reasons for joining any community or having affection for anything. So there are a lot of different doll communities out there, right? And people have different goals with the dolls. And I think what happens is people sort of see that people have an affection in doll communities for these often human-like dolls. And they sort of blur that into the robot thing. There are some similarities, but often the goals are very different. So let me clarify that. For example, there is what's called the ball joint doll community, the JD community. Those dolls come in various sizes um, and they're called ball joint dolls because the joints are literally, you know, they're balls, so they give them a lot of degrees of freedom of movement. A lot of people involved in those communities are into the dolls, which can be anywhere from, you know, Barbie size to human sized. Um, in many ways, some people are attracted to the artistry and the craftsmanship of the dolls. A lot of people, there are large fan fiction communities. Some people choose to uh, live with the dolls in a way as if they were human-like uh, or even fantasy-like, fantasy creatures like elves and trolls and things like that. But, you know, is that so different than a lot of other 
adult role-playing games? Is that so different than things like Dungeons and Dragons? It's just in this case, something is an embodied thing that they're playing with. You know, it really is subjective and it depends person to person. Dr. Carpenter goes on to describe the reborn doll community, which quite frankly, I'd never heard of. These dolls resemble newborn babies. And just like adult dolls, they've got a wide community of collectors or owners that gather on the internet. The dolls cost as much as $20,000 and thousands of collectors around the world use these dolls for therapeutic purposes. I start to hear a lot of similarities with the girlfriend doll community. It doesn't replace a child and never will, but it does help me, especially like on my sad days where I'm just like, dang, like, why am I not a mom today, <laughs> you know? And so then, you know, I, like I said, I just pick him up and I'm like, it's okay, you're gonna get through this, you're, you're okay. A lot of times it's women collectors of the reborns in particular, and people will tell stories saying, well, these women are trying to find a substitute infant for whatever reason. They either couldn't have children, their children are grown, whatever it is. That might be partially true, or it might be fully true for some of the women involved. But there are so many reasons that people can have affection for these dolls. Now, you think about the tactile experience of holding an infant is very comforting for a lot of people. These reborn dolls are weighted in such a way that it feels like holding an infant. They have, you know, um, proprietary materials for the skin that feels very human skin-like. It can be a very comforting soothing experience just to have that closeness with the doll, much like perhaps when you were a kid. And there can also be that um, narrative aspect. Again, the storytelling can be really enjoyable, the creativity, creating a persona, a story for this doll, a life, whether that's in the form of fan fiction or naming it or creating a nursery. So are there some parallels? I, of course, I, I think there are. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I, I, it's harder for me to, to pick those out and say these are clear connections. But certainly humans can, can have an affection for a range of things. And, and dolls are certainly uh, a form of that. And especially when it's almost like it feels like a stepping stone, right? Like a doll to a robot. But I don't think it's that clear because robots have a lot of different clues that they give us about how to treat them. So there still are some differences. Let's say even a Roomba uh, moving around your house, picking up the dirt. It really looks like it's got goals, right? It does, but it's got robot goals. It's not thinking, oh, I better pick up this dirt. I want a clean apartment. The Roomba is just picking up dirt. Right. It's just moving along a LIDAR mapped area in your living room. But we, using our the mental model that we know best, which is our human one, tend to put this sort of anthropomorphic or sometimes zoomorphic animal-like organic traits onto things like robots. Talking to Dr. Carpenter opened up so many more questions than it did answers. On one hand, I understood more about the dolls and emotional attachment in these various communities. And on the other hand, I wanted to understand more about the future where dolls become robots and when these dolls can make decisions without us. 
okay, so we we understand robots don't have morals or values now. Like they're just sort of, come, you know, going around the floor, picking up dirt. Like they're not, they don't have like humans do these values, these conditioning from our environment about things that may give us racist or, you know, sexist ideas, but what will happen in the future? Yeah, so I, I don't think those are things that you can program against, right? I mean, humans are messy. We, we are completely messy and imperfect and we can be wonderful, but humans can be horrible to each other, right? So the idea of us coming up with one moral compass that we could, one set of heuristics that we could somehow program into a robot would be impossible. It'd be impossible culturally. It would just be impossible from a programming standpoint. There's no one universal set of agreed upon morals and, and ethics, right? So then you say, well, okay, but what about machine learning? What if it could learn from the world around it? It, it? To a certain degree, sure. Let's put in a perfect sort of tech world, let's say, you know, years, decades from now where it's machine learning's evolved at a, a place where the robot has some understanding of, of humanness. The, one of the things where we are right now, though, that I have trouble envisioning, even as somebody who envisions the future, is AI being able to really, truly, deeply understand culture. And culture is context it, for mm. everything that we do. So it's also the, as I was saying, the framework for our morals and ethics, which can change from culture to culture. And furthermore, a robot is always going to know the world from its space of being a robot. It can't understand being a human any more than I can understand being a robot, if that makes sense. It's how you understand the world. So uh, as far as can we make like an ethically, you know, perfect AI or robot? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so any more than there's a perfectly ethical human. It requires dynamic decision-making that's culturally embedded that humans are already sort of bad at. And I, I would say, why even, why is that a goal? I mean, I, I understand practically, you say conversation for an academic exercise. Why is it a goal to give robots ethics or to act ethically? Of course you understand because you don't want them, I don't know, harming people, right? But I, we're still focused on robots and artificial intelligence mimicking us or mimicking it, us as humans or understanding humans or something else that we already understand in the world or think we do like animals that sometimes I think, you know, we forget that our role is we're the humans, they're the robots. Why are we putting them in a position where they should be making ethical or moral decisions at, at a certain level, <laughs> right? So it, it's not that I'm saying don't worry about it. Yes, we want to make things that work safely with people. But instead of trying to reproduce a human understanding of a human condition, which we already don't do, I would like to focus on safety first. I just want to take a quick break to tell you about an app called Lover, which you may have heard me mention before. It's because I'm super excited about it. It's designed by Professor of Sexual Medicine, Dr. Brittany Blair and her team. And Lover helps you identify the sexual issue you want to work on. It can be anything from performance anxiety to not reaching climax in bed. 
It then creates a personalised treatment plan of scientific techniques and exercises to follow. And they're seeing crazy changes for users. Okay, get this, 92% of women reach orgasm more easily after doing exercises in the app. So get yourself over to lover.io today or search for Lover in the App Store. Not everybody that wants to get a sex robot or is curious about sex robots is necessarily looking to replace or substitute human love, though some people are interested in it as an alternative to human beings. Let me say this. Humans are great at developing social categories, right? So I talk to you differently than how I would talk to, uh, you know, a coworker or uh, how I talk to uh, somebody maybe working in a store that I just have a brief transaction with, or I just speak with you differently than my mother, right? You know, so we have all these different social categories in our lives that we're already adept at doing. I think that, you know, similarly, we do that for love. I, I love my mother, right? Um, you can also love a partner. You can love your child. You can love your dog. How you love your mother versus how you love your dog are two very different things, right? Mm. We've all had attachments to objects in one form or another, whether it was a doll or a blanket or your car or a boat. As our an phones, our phones. I feel like so many people are oh, right? married to their cell phones. Right. And so what you're asking me is, can someone fall into romantic love with a robot? I think a clinical psychologist would give you a very different, probably, answer than, than I'm going to give you. And they would say that for it to be love, I'm guessing, that a lot of people would say it needs to be reciprocated. It needs to be two-way. And for that, it, you need to have another human in the loop, a sex robot, no matter how smart it is. People might say are not. it's not truly reciprocating in an intelligent way. You are controlling the whole relationship, you being the human within a relationship with the robot, which I'm using the word relationship with air quotes because some people would argue with me about that as well. I went back to Dr. Marion Brandon, the clinical psychologist we'd heard from earlier, to ask her the same question. I wanted to know if she disagreed with Dr. Carpenter. Did she think that love was possible with a robot? Did a human need to be present so that it could be reciprocated? Is it only romantic love if it's reciprocated? Males are four times more likely uh, to approve of their romantic partner having sex with a robot. But I think more importantly to what you're asking, they're twice as likely to imagine having romantic feelings for a sex robot. And, and that did throw me off initially when I started researching this. Like, can you really love an object? But I've come to the c conclusion that yes, people really can love an object. And there are so many reasons why a person could actually open to uh, be more vulnerable with a sex robot or a sex doll. And you know, it is when we're most vulnerable that we feel most attached and loved. When we're vulnerable in a sexual situation, our hearts open, it is a very potent experience and connected to lust and great sex. So 
if you ask most people or if you ask people what their best sex was, you're going to hear a lot of folks talking about a moment where they pushed themselves past a limit. They allowed a partner closer than they normally do. They let themselves be exposed in a way they normally wouldn't be. All that is vulnerability. Now, you can imagine with a sex doll or a sex robot, for many people, it's going to be easier to allow themselves that level of vulnerability. And then the attachment, I think, can flow from that point. So it can be hard for us to be vulnerable with another human being where we think, oh, you know, we'll be rejected. They'll think we're unattractive. They won't like the way I sound or look. Um, what if I love them and then they reject me? What if they leave me? Like vulnerability attaches to all this very basic fear uh, that's natural for human beings. But, you know, all of those complications won't be um, worrisome if you're connecting to a robot or a dog. In the relationship with the robot can certainly have a lot of care and affection and, and what they consider love for it. Is it the same as a human-human love? No, and I, I, I think that is generally part of the draw to those people, you know, that uh, do love the robot. Um, they love it distinctly because of the relationship they have with it, which is some people might consider outside of that relationship very one-sided, right? You're creating the entire persona, the, the name of the robot, any conversations, any narrative you have, the backstory for the robot, what's commonly called in, you know, sex worker relationships, that whole girlfriend experience, you know, that that narrative, the, the pretending that this person is reciprocating an affectionate relationship with you. It's a really complicated set of, of questions. I So I guess I would say it's um, it's a new kind of affection, attachment or love that is not been thoroughly explored by any means. And we're just beginning to look into it right now. I think people like Dave Cap, who are out there, he's really, um, some people think of him as an outlier or as an extreme, and he is in many ways, but his talking so openly about his um, desires and affections uh, about sex robots in, in such an um, thoughtful way that he does, I think he's sort of um, a great model that can help people think through uh, the complicated ethical things that we were talking about earlier. Um, he does his relationships with his, his dolls raises a lot of questions that I think are important for us to look at because these robots are not going away. They're becoming more and more sophisticated. Uh, they're becoming more and more embedded in our everyday lives. And what might seem like an extreme or even an outlier right now, like Dave Cat, raises a lot of questions about how just people are going to be interacting with the robots in their lives every day uh, in a range of ways. Basically, my ideal would be to have a full-fledged gynoid version of Shidore. If I could actually, I mean, this kind of speaks to your question about, like, if I were to able to, like, take any of the dolls anywhere with me. If I had a doll that was essentially a robot where, you know, she and I could walk down the steps together and enter the car together mm -hmm. and 
drive to a um, a concert together or whatever, you know, that's the ideal. That's the perfect sort of uh, scenario. But that's probably not going to be happening for another couple of decades. Thanks for listening to Future of Sex. This podcast was produced by David Lamb and myself and edited with some amazing sound design as usual by Chad Michael Snavely at Sound On, Sound Off. You can visit more of Chad's work at chadmichael.com and if you have any questions or feedback or just want to keep up with what I'm doing, follow me on Instagram at Future of Sex. And I'd love if you would rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And of course, forward it to a friend. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.